What should a Christian be doing during an election season? How should you be determining your vote? Well, for the longest time, Christians have been told to be silent about politics. And I understand that sentiment. We don't want anything to be a stumbling block to keep people from the gospel. And while this is absolutely true, at the same time, politics are literally a matter of life and death. Your children's education and their future, justice, the handling of refugees, the fight against pedophilia, and where your taxes go are just the tip of the spear on issues that fall under politics in this upcoming election. So how should a Christian navigate the political landmines, especially in an election year? As usual, we are going to scripture to talk through the biblical principles that will help us as we navigate these divisively complex times. Welcome to the Doxa Dialogue, a podcast about living life on mission for the glory of God. My name is David Rudy, and I'm the pastor of Doxa Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. There's no roundtable today. You're just going to hear from me. And honestly, I didn't even ask anyone on the cast to join me today, for which I'm sure uh, most of them are thankful. But this episode is going to be unique. You could call it an election season special. And I plan on having a few more solo podcasts this year. But I have three questions I want to address. And before I dive in, I want to set the stage with some clarity. My goal is to talk about biblical principles. What does the Bible say about politics and how does that apply to a follower of Jesus Christ? Now, in this application, we're going to be stepping into the gray. So please hear me on this going in. The Doxa Dialogue is all about starting conversations. We love to hear back from you, the listener. And I would say that for the 100 or so regular weekly listeners, this podcast today will be extra spicy. I would guess that at least half of you are going to hear something that you either haven't thought before, maybe it'll surprise you, or maybe you'll even disagree with it. So whenever you are talking about politics, you're going to get your hands a little dirty. And I have prayed a lot about this. I honestly feel like this is this is a podcast that is a great platform to tackle something like this. The goal is to help you personally fill in the framework of what the Bible reveals about politics and how you fit in. Don't many of us struggle with that? I know I do. So on some of these finer points of application, I will gladly agree to disagree. Some of this stuff you might not hear me say from the pulpit on Sunday morning when I'm exposing the Word of God, but I think this is a conversation that needs to be had as we are all trying to keep our heads above water in our current election season. first question I want to attempt to answer today is, should a Christian be actively engaged in politics? My answer is yes. But before I dive into that and talk about it from a biblical perspective, let me mention the two extremes many Christians find themselves in. The first one is infatuation. 
You know, maybe they listen to Fox News more than they read scripture, which produces an us against them mentality, as well as anger and frustration and just an overall sour spirit that is putting more trust in men than it is on the one who is sovereign over every human leader. Besides infatuation, many Christians can just stumble into indifference. This is the person who has given up hope in human authority and is disgusted by the hypocrisy, the doublespeak, and the messiness that is encapsulated in politics. Maybe they see a broken two-party system, or perhaps they have been burned by supporting a candidate only to see their hero fall flat and disappoint. I can honestly say that I have been in both of these extremes in the past when I was a upperclassman in high school, I was infatuated with politics. When I got out of college, there were a few years there where I was completely indifferent to politics. And for me, it's crucial to steer towards a balanced approach to politics. Politics isn't going to save us. Only Jesus can provide real lasting change and true peace. And that comes through the change of a heart, which is only possible through repentance and faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we can't afford to be indifferent and clueless to what is going on in our country and our local governments. More about that in a minute. Just like we can't worship man and put all our hopes in the American dream. So here are some thoughts on voting as a Christian. We constantly hear that voting is both an American and a Christian duty. But we aren't often told how our Christian faith intersects with this civic privilege. Although scripture doesn't give us a voting guide, it does teach us many things about wisdom, God's character, an ethic of love, which all can be applied to casting our ballot. So here are some pastoral thoughts on how our Christian faith should shape our vote. Voting is an act of loving our neighbor. Why even vote? There is no biblical command to vote. The Bible tells us to submit to our government, but it doesn't require that we vote. So why is it that most Christians believe voting is a moral duty? Well, the first answer should be Jesus commanded us to love our neighbors. And in the book of Jeremiah, God's heart is revealed when he tells his people to seek the welfare of their city. When we vote, we have the opportunity to contribute to the good of our community and to show love to others. We can't limit our love of neighbor to private, personal interactions like giving a cup of sugar or helping someone with a flat tire. Love is also a public action. Supporting legislation that contributes to the flourishing of our neighbors is also a necessary act of love. And to take this to the next logical step, if voting is an act of loving our neighbor, we should be sure that Christian love is guiding our vote. This means we should vote with not only our interests in mind, but with the interests and welfare of others, especially marginalized people, the defenseless that don't have a voice, and for our future generations. Jesus explained through the parable of the Good Samaritan that our neighbor is anyone and everyone who we come into contact with. And to love our neighbor is to love the people who are easily overlooked or discarded by society. In America right now, this is primarily unborn children the educational system that shapes our kids' worldview, and the refugees that are seeking asylum in our country. How do you prioritize those issues? In the past, I would say that racial and religious minorities are overlooked and discarded, but an honest look at the policies that have been established inside our nation's borders over the last four years really have done more for the success of the minority than we have seen in decades. 
And it's not really religious minorities that are the ones who are getting discriminated against. It's, in actuality, Christians who are the ones who are being discriminated against. In 2016, the hot-button issue was more about immigration. Now it's more about police reform and even the war on sex trafficking and the war on child sex trafficking. If you haven't looked closely enough to realize the incredible strides that have been made in those areas, I would encourage you to look into it. But both sides say they want equality and justice, and minorities are not currently the object of rejection and harsh treatment. I realize that, again, may be a shock, but if you would like to discuss that point further, I would be glad to talk more about it. Being pro-life means loving all life, acknowledging the dignity of the unborn, of the immigrant, the poor, and the incarcerated. So loving your neighbor when it comes to your vote means you have the Christian responsibility to determine which party is going to execute a platform for the voiceless and who will put in place justice reforms that promote the flourishing rather than the breakdown of our society. This is an area that you need to look long and hard at. And in reality, it's not easy to find the full scoop from any of the major media outlets. It's an area where you need to do research and it's an area that you really don't have any biblical ground to keep silent on. Our primary allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom, not a political party. No political party today speaks for Jesus or perfectly shows his love with their policies. And in the not too distant past, you could make a case that Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Green Party, whatever, they all had strengths and weaknesses. There wasn't one party that stood out as the standard bearer in every last area. They all had certain points that sounded closer to the biblical principles of government than perhaps the other. And for those of us who haven't kept up with the rapidly changing climate of our culture, as America on the whole has drifted further and further away from morality and their creator and ultimate truth, the entire political sphere has evolved into more of an extreme divide than ever. What I mean by that is it wasn't long ago that Democrats and the Republicans weren't that different. Sure, they talked differently. They definitely had nuanced policy differences. But at the end of the day, not much would radically change about your life, depending on whether the letter R or D was in front of the governor of your state. That's simply not the case anymore. And I can't really emphasize that enough. The sides have a chasm between them now, and there's no turning back anytime soon. So I think we need to understand two things here. Our allegiance is not to a political party. Every party is fallible, and even your favorite politician is a human who will make mistakes. Our ultimate allegiance is to Christ alone, and we live for his eternal kingdom while we are here on earth. Although we may very often side with one party over another, we must be very careful not to confuse any political party with God's kingdom or a party platform with God's will. The Bible isn't even explicitly clear on issues like gun control, so we shouldn't be quick to assume that our preferred party will get it right all the time or unquestioningly take our party's position on every issue just because they are right on many issues. This doesn't mean that Christians can't join a party, but it does mean that we should be critical of our parties and be thoughtful of how Jesus's teaching might rebuke and correct even our party of choice. So should a Christian be active in politics? I don't see how you couldn't be. 
You can't love your neighbor without voting, and your voice literally shapes the direction of our country in education, in justice, and in our own religious and personal liberties. Here's another question. Can a Christian in good conscience vote for someone with questionable personal integrity? I know, it's it's the big one. <laughs> well, here you go. A few thoughts on this. Character and leadership matters. That is first and foremost. Read the book of Proverbs. If a candidate fits the biblical's description of a fool, you're probably going to need to spend some time on that, and you're going to probably have some reservations about voting for that person. How naive is it to believe that a person who lacks honesty and moral integrity is qualified to lead a nation and the world? However, in 2020, it's not simply that easy. To any honest observer, and as a reflection of our country as a whole, what if both candidates have serious character flaws? What if one candidate has their flaws hidden and brushed under the rug, and another has their flaws amplified and exaggerated? But still, many of us are thinking, should I just not vote? A very legitimate question. If I can get real for a minute, please don't judge me here. But for the last decade, I have personally been against the major two-party system. And there's a, the dilemma that it provides between picking of the lesser of two evils, so to speak. So what do you do if the media blasts one narrative that one candidate is morally repugnant, but an honest evaluation reveals that the second candidate is just as broken, if not more? Here's where it gets tricky. Maybe these thoughts will help. Picking between a man or a woman to be a leader when you have limited options is not the same as choosing someone with character to lead. If a vote for a follower of Jesus with a high regard for biblical justice and equality who had a deep personal conviction of servant leadership was on the table, I would gladly rejoice at the opportunity to cast that vote. I want a leader to be humble and meek and to believe in the depravity of man, to limit his power or her power, and to legislate for limited government, which puts more freedom in the individual and allows free markets to advance the welfare of our communities. That's me personally, and this is an argument for another day, but to me, I could make a case that limited government ideologically fits within the framework of mankind's fallen depravity and the biblical definition of government in Romans 13. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Our founding fathers believe that and the Bible teaches that. Limited government that protects and defends personal freedom and individual property rights isn't just proven to be more successful throughout the history of the world. America isn't just a shining example of that. That actually fits with what the Bible teaches about government. You would have to be very naive not to see that as a major issue in this election. Romans 13 is a definitive text here. The government's role is to protect you. Romans 13.3 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. It's not to be a nanny state. And I have strong personal feelings about this that are all based in scripture. But going back to the original question, as it stands in 2020, we don't always have this kind of option where we can select someone who believes that way. And you can choose to vote against the two-party system if you so choose. I have done that in the past myself by either writing in a vote or voting for a minor party candidate who in reality had no chance to win. You have to ask yourself, is it worth it? 
I don't believe it's a wasted vote because it's going to take a lot more of those votes to eventually change the system. So those votes mean something. But in asking this question, I can't help but think about the viral TikTok video of a of a Biden supporter going off on saying how she doesn't like Joe Biden, she thinks he's racist, she thinks he's creepy, but this is not the year to spend her vote on anyone else because the other option is a fascist. And then she goes off on a complete meltdown about fascism, unfortunately displaying her ignorance on what fascism really is. But once you get past the sheer cringiness of that video, you have to consider her point. And if you saw the video, you know this is a weird thing to agree on. But her point is the stakes are too high right now to end the two-party system and vote for someone else. The alternative is too frightening. I would agree that we have never had two completely polar opposite opposing viewpoints about the scope of government's power ever in an election in America's history. The two parties are no longer close. They are cataclysmically and diametrically opposed to each other, and any astute observer has to acknowledge that they both represent vastly differing worldviews, not only of the scope of government's influence, but of the foundational ideological direction. So here's a quick reminder. The Founding Fathers, the framers of our Constitution, never intended for one man to rule everything. The office of the president is not as big of a deal as the current state of affairs leads you to believe. We have a republic with a system of checks and balances. So I could go a lot further into that, but the point is you're not just electing an individual. We can't elevate the personality above the office, even though that's what the media tells us every day. The person in power holds all the cards. That's simply not true. When you elect a governor or a representative or a president, you are electing a system and an entire platform of ideas. There are thousands of people who will get to work in a myriad of different nuanced ways under each president's directives. Nominating Supreme Court justices who will interpret the Constitution correctly cannot be underrated, but that's just the start. We can't overlook the fact that more than a person in an office, we are voting for an ideological worldview, and we are voting for a mission and a mandate for thousands of people to get to work. So to go back to the original question, can you in good conscience vote for someone without the moral moral character you would like to see? To me personally, and I can agree to disagree with you on this one, but for me, the answer is yes. Who is that person going to put into positions of power? Are they going to align with people who have a Christian worldview, who believe the Bible, or are they going to be driven by humanism with their own fabricated religion that goes under the name of identity politics. And this is coming from a guy who didn't vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton in 2016. I cared more about what it would say for my personal testimony for Christ. And I'm not trying to go into what I'm personally doing this year, but I can honestly say there's nothing wrong with voting for the candidate that gives the best chance at upholding biblical principles of government, even if that person isn't a Christian. We can't forget that people change. Christians should be the type of people that never hold someone's past mistakes over their head. We know what grace and mercy feel like. And we must judge people on their actions, not on what other people say about them. There's a whole lot more that could be said here, but if you are looking for answers from the Bible, we must remember that the King's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Whoever our leader is going to be, God is the one who is in charge. He is going to give us who we deserve and he can steer that individual any way he desires.
The last question I want to address today is how vocal should I be? I think this takes a lot of spiritual discernment. I think sharing videos on social media can be helpful if done the right way, but that's not for everyone. There's a lot of helpful content creators out there who aren't on TV and who don't fit the mold of Republican or Democrat. If you'd like some recommendations, I would be glad to share. Just let me know. But I think we should be having conversations right now. And I've personally changed a little bit on this. For the longest time, I wouldn't share my personal opinions at all. But looking at where that has gotten us and what that does to the next generation made me think, where is that in scripture? Is that fearful? Is that wise? In 1 Chronicles 12, it highlights the sons of Issachar. And this is what it says about them. They were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. The sons of Issachar understood what was going on behind the scenes. They took the time to research, to understand, and they gave advice. There's nothing wrong with understanding these matters of life and death and being open about having genuine, loving conversations about them. But we have to do it respectfully and gracefully, and we have to keep it in its proper place. The temptation is to let it get in the way of the gospel. You can do that by talking about it more than we talk about Jesus. You can do that by putting your hopes and dreams into that and forgetting that Jesus Christ is our ultimate king. It cannot take the place of the gospel. We all have to pick and choose our battles. I wouldn't waste time with people who are already entrenched, maybe even brainwashed, but it's perfectly within your Christian responsibility and civic duty for the love of your community to talk to the people who don't know what to do. What easier way can you stand out and show humility and graciousness than by just having a calm, patient, well thought out and reasoned conversation in this sphere with someone who you disagree with or someone who hasn't even thought about things the way you've been thinking about them. If done the right way, it could lead to the most important conversation, the only conversation that will result in lasting life change, a gospel conversation. So I would take as much of my dialogue offline as possible. Get off the cesspool that is Twitter. Do it face-to-face where they can hear your heart and you can let them know that you're a person, not just an opinion on a screen. And just analyze what season of life are you in? What's your platform? I think far too many Christians have been silent for way too long. It's one of the reasons why we are where we are at today. The issues are complex and we must disagree graciously. No church should line up exactly on all of these issues. The church has to have diversity that is unified in Jesus Christ. So a healthy church and a healthy follower of Jesus shouldn't be afraid to have a reasoned dialogue. That's one of the ways God uses us to sharpen and strengthen each other. On many of these issues, we like to pretend that the correct solution is incredibly clear-cut. But unfortunately, that is not the case. In this particular election, good Christian people will disagree on the right person to vote for, and we should not judge their motives even if we disagree with their choice. So I would challenge you to engage in civil and thoughtful conversations. You as an individual follower of Jesus Christ must allow the Holy Spirit to lead you. If we don't speak up now, it's only going to get harder to speak up in the future. Everyone has a part to play. For some of us, it's taking this more seriously. Quit being indifferent. 
For others, it's quit making this an idol of your heart. Find peace and hope in your Savior rather than the human messiness that's always going to do disturb you and, and make you angry and upset. For many of us, it's to not live in fear. Love people. And one of the ways we love people is by giving a voice to truth and justice and seeking the welfare of our city by engaging in dialogue and helping people grow in their understanding. If we don't say anything, someone else will say something. This we know, and it's our duty as loving neighbors to share as much light and peace and truth as we possibly can as we await our returning King. Thanks again for listening to the Doxa Dialogue podcast. If this is your first time listening, we talk about a different topic every week. Recently, we've had conversations about equality and impartiality. And next week, the roundtable will be back for a look at gratitude. Please give us a rating if this was helpful for you. And please share it with a friend. The original intent of this podcast has always been to give you another teaching resource. It's another arm of teaching from our church, but sharing something like this is sometimes the first step in opening a door to have a larger conversation about your faith. You can give us feedback on our website, doxaupstate.church forward slash doxadialogue or through Instagram at doxa underscore dialogue. Looking forward to hearing back from some of you. Have a great week. You are loved.